Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. It is way too early in the morning for me to be this excited, but I am joined as always with the irritatingly irresponsible partner in crime, Mr. Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. Good morning. And I just learned that Australians don't need stinking coffee. <laughs> I'm actually not a coffee drinker. I don't like the stuff, but that's a whole nother topic. Okay. So are you a tea drinker? Yeah, I do like a cup of tea. That's that's definitely true. So is that your British heritage being an Australian? Yeah. Uh, yeah my mum's British too, you know. So dad was born up in, in – oh, actually was born in, in – no, sorry, he was born in Australia, but he was raised in London. So yeah, we'll say there's a certain British heritage there. Okay. Cool. We're not going to go into my whole family history, and people don't care. Oh, I think people could be interested, but yeah. People, yeah, okay. We, we save that. We save that for a later recording, maybe. Okay, we'll do the we'll do the Mark's family history uh, recording at a later date. Yep. So moving along, because we've got a lot to talk about today. The interesting stuff that happened today. What have you got for us, Kai? I've got two things actually. After the you know the multitude of stuff from last time or the time before last time, actually. Um, I've got in nineteen. 19- 70, Apollo 13 returned to Earth safely. Oh, cool. Um, and in 1961, the big uh, Bay of Pigs invasion happened, where oh, yes. the CIA um, landed at the Bay of Pigs in Cuba to um, you know, get rid of Fidel Castro, which didn't quite work out, apparently. <laughs> I've got uh, the 48th anniversary of Ford Motors unveiling the Mustang. Ooh, Ooh, yep. Uh, 1875, the game of snooker is invented. Mm, that's interesting. I think the Mustang would be very interesting for Campbell. Oh, yes, that is true. Yeah. People know Campbell at all. <laughs> Let's just talk about people that some people don't know. Um, ah. ooh, uh, 1194, the 818th anniversary of Richard the, Richard the Lionheart returns to England and is crowned for the second time. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an interesting... Oh, uh, Jerry Mock becomes the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1964. Ooh, that is good. And Sirhan Sirhan is convicted of assassinating Robert F. Kennedy, 43rd anniversary. Ah, busy day, April 17th. Yes. Now, we have a illustrious and most wonderful guest to come on board with us. And I believe he also has some uh, pick of the day as well. Mr. Sean Caulfield, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, gentlemen. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. So this is, I now, think, of a first, actually, that one of our guests contributes to the thing of the day part of the recording, actually. So I'm very happy that you will be the first person to do that. Well, of course, the interesting thing is that for me, it is still April 16th. So I am going to contribute some things that happened on April 16th. Ooh, that's yeah. clever. Tricky time zone math, I like it. (laughs) And bearing in mind who we've got on here, um, 1867, on April 16th, was the birthday of Wilbur Wright, the aviation pioneer. Okay. There's one for you, Kai. Yep. Um, And an unfortunate incident, in 1847, an English sailor accidentally shot a Maori, which started the uh, Wanganui campaign in the New Zealand land wars. Ooh, ouch. It's actually pronounced Fanganui. Fanganui. Okay, yep. thank you. Yes, I knew I'd mess that up. No, that's fine. I mean, uh, I had to learn that the hard way as well when I came here. 
And a silly little bit of trivia. Uh, we had a cat named for this French painter. Uh, Louise Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun was born April 16th in 1755. Wow, cool. So there cool. you go. Awesome. That is a, a, that was a very clever move of Sean, you know, just going back a day and being even totally safe of any duplicates with us. <laughs> really I hadn't clever. even thought of that until you said it was April 17th, and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, yes, it is for them. <laughs> well, you know, Kai, we're obviously so good at finding things about what happened today, which I think is a very valuable skill that Sean... Sean had to make sure that he was, he was ready for yeah, that. Yeah, it's a totally valuable skill. You know, it's one of those things like I can speak the voiceover to every single Simpsons episode. It's that level of valuable skill. Go on, do it. Go on. No, Go no, on. no I can't. I know, Give us something. I've, Give us something. No, it was like if I could do that, you know, then oh. that's a similar valuable skill, basically. You got me all excited. No, 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 no thanks. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I feel like I've seen cake on the menu, got there, and they're like, no cake. Yeah, sorry. So, Sean, well, I think probably everyone knows who you are because of your your, your incredible talent and, and distributed knowledge worldwide. worldwide. Um, do you want to give us a quick rundown on uh, who you are and what you've been up to and the, the things you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm sure that most of the listeners will know me from the Cold Fusion community. Um, I got into Cold Fusion in 2001 when I was working at Macromedia and they bought a lair. Uh, and so it was kind of one of those accidents of employment. Before that, I'd been a C++ and Java developer for a long time. Uh, worked on compilers and virtual machines and all sorts of systems and stuff. Uh, and I'd only started doing web development in the late 90s. And more recently, I've been doing a lot of closure um, and seem to have gotten myself a, a bit of a reputation in the closure community for being a squeaky wheel who wants to go around and fix documentation and make sure that we've got tests and all the libraries are up to date and stuff like that. So uh, that's what I'm working on. I work at World Singles. Uh, Full-time, we're an internet dating company. Uh, I'm also CEO of Rilo US, the consulting group. So those are my various hats. That sounds quite interesting and also quite busy. How do you um, manage to do all that stuff in like, you know, 24, let's say minus six hours a day, like 18 hours a day or something? Like that? Yeah, as my wife will tell you, I am just online and permanently connected. So when I'm not asleep, I'm online. Okay, cool. Fair enough. So the reason, or well, one of the reasons why we invited you to, um, to this episode is basically that um, Mark and I started that series last time where we wanted to, you know, look into things that people would do if Cold Fusion went away from, you know, today on, for example. And um, obviously, your, you know, move towards closure and um, and getting into the closure community a bit more, and also your background with a lot of different other languages and platform in the past, um, makes you a very interesting candidate for that. Um, so. I mean, maybe maybe try to explain to to our listeners what closure is and why you got into it in the first place. Okay, yeah, um, I can start with the why because that's probably easier. Closure is one of a whole group of functional languages, and back when I was a university student, I stayed on and did research, PhD research, and was very interested in functional programming. 
And so there is an incomplete thesis out there titled uh, Functional Programming Language Design and Implementation, uh, which I spent three years working on. I, a friend of mine had built a Lisp interpreter as his final year project uh, in my course, and I played with that a lot, and it got me very interested. And so ever since then, I've kind of been watching the functional programming side of the world uh, and always hoping it would go mainstream. Uh, back then, the languages that were hot were Sassel and Miranda, uh, and a little later, ML. Um, and then Haskell came out in the early 90s. And I was always puzzled. I could never understand why no one was taking up these wonderful languages and using them for everything. And then several years ago, we started to see more of a resurgence in functional programming. Uh, we saw Scala suddenly getting a lot of press. Closure appeared in about 2007, I think, the very first version. Uh, and now, you know, it's got quite a bit of traction since 2009. Um, and part of the reason for that with the functional programming languages is Moore's Law, which told us that chips were just going to get faster and faster. Uh, every couple of years, chips would double in speed. Uh, and we kind of hit a plateau on that in terms of pure speed, but what we've been able to do is move to multiple cores to keep increasing the speed of overall processors. Uh, and as we move to more cores, you need better concurrency. And to get better concurrency, you need better tools. And it's very hard with a lot of the traditional languages, and OO in particular, where your everything you do is based on mutable state. Uh, you have an object full of data, you poke at it, change its state, and that's how you get things done. And that doesn't work very well in a heavily concurrent world because you can't share that state safely between multiple threads mm -hmm. without a lot of locking. Uh, functional programming languages get around that by having immutable data. And when you do an operation, you create a new version of the data. And so it's always safe to share data between threads because the data itself never changes. It's always just producing new versions of data. Uh, so this is where I get that, to ask. Sorry, can I, can I ask the stupid question yeah, sure. at this point? Which is, okay, so if data is always immutable, how do I do anything? Because I can't, <laughs> I can't do that, anything with it. That's crazy. <laughs> well, a lot of the, the performance behind Scala's collection and Clojure's data structures uh, is based on something called a persistent data structure. And the way that works is when you create a new data structure, most of the data is actually shared between the two. So if you have a list and you add a new element to the front, all you get is that new element and the entire rest of the list is shared between both places. So because of the way the data structures are organized, it's actually very, very efficient to modify just parts of the data structure and get this new data structure that really only has a few new pieces and the rest of it is all shared. So you, essentially what you do is you, you take the world and you create a new world a little piece at a time. So that's how you get things done. Okay. <laughs> that was like an... Okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I mean, obviously, the, there's genuine mutability around the edges. You know, wherever you're writing yep. to a file system or you're writing into a database, you've got mutability. Um, and, you know, in terms of the web interaction, you get a request comes in, you do a whole bunch of stuff, and you reply with data. So the request response request response process is can be purely functional uh, yep. except when you're interacting with a database on the back end and databases know how to deal with concurrency and all that sort of stuff 
So you can essentially push all of the mutability out to the edges of your world and then have this nice, pure, uh, heavily concurrent core where all of the, the logic actually happens. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So really what you're kind of doing is, is you're, you're taking in some data and you're manipulating it in a functional way and then in the end you're like, here's another pack of data which is probably, it's, which is probably made up of or, or appended to or completely transformed at the other end and that's what you're kind of pushing out to the rest of the world and then maybe you might stick that in a file store or maybe you might stick that out on the web somewhere or something like that. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, because you know, your request will come in, if we're looking at the web, your request comes in um, you start to do transformations, you'll pull data from somewhere, say a data store, you know, NoSQL, MySQL, whatever. Um, you may well write back to the data store and you will get the result of all that transformation is what goes back to the browser. Um, should we maybe take a quick step back um, into that concurrency argument you brought up when you introduced Clojure as a language and you know mm -hmm. wh why, you, why you're going to do it? I think a lot of people are not aware how, um, how the need to do things synchronized or with locking, even with tiny amounts of synchronization, brings down the overall performance on multi-cores. That's one of the, the general issues I see, that if you have quite small amounts of code that has to be locked in the first place, that all of a sudden your parallel throughput goes pretty much exponentially down the drain, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the thing, that a little bit of locking can actually hurt you really, really badly. Um, I think you know, where CF developers can probably feel this is you know, we work with CFCs a lot, and as we know all too well, if you forget to var declare something, your data ends up in the variable scope and will have the same lifetime as wherever the CFC is. So if you have a CFC in session scope or application scope, suddenly your variables become shared variables across the session, multiple requests, or across the whole application, and mm -hmm. therefore multiple different people's requests. And, you know, historically what people have done back in the old days with CF, whenever they accessed um, shared scope variables, was to put exclusive locks around any updates, yeah. and then um, read-only locks around any reads. Yeah. And so you could have multiple reads happening, but if anyone was writing, the entire system stopped. So you couldn't even look at a piece of data um, while it was being changed. You had to wait for it to be changed, and then you could look at it. Uh, and so one of the big changes in the functional world is, well, we'll let you look at the data anytime you want with no locks ever. And because we're not modifying it, we're creating a new version, there's never a need to lock for updates either. And what you'll get is the entire world in a consistent state and then when you look again, you still get the entire world in a consistent state. It's just a different state. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, with the functional languages, when you have a data structure, let's say it's a list or an array, you can operate on all those elements uh, at the same time. You can have multiple processes running. You can be updating uh, a process based on part of the data while something else is updating it based on another part of the data. So you can get as much concurrency as you've got cores, essentially. When you were looking around for, um, you know, or into the functional programming language side of things again, why did you decide to, you know, play with Clojure and not, for example, with Erlang or, you know, Scala, which is sadly semi-functional as well? 
Well, the main thing for me was that I wanted something I could integrate with CF. So I wanted something that played nice on the JVM. And I actually did start out experimenting with Scala. And Scala is definitely a better Java. I think it definitely owns that title. Uh, as you just noted, it's a hybrid language. So it's both an OO language and it's a functional language. So you have to work at it to create a purely functional version of algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's nice in that you can drop back to the OO stuff. The, the real problem from my point of view was that with CF, we're so used to, uh, you know, modify the code, reload in the browser, it compiles on demand, um, and you get this very fast cycle of make changes, test it out, make changes, test it out, deploy it, and you're off to the races. And with Scala and with any statically typed language where you have a compiler involved, um, you've got to run it through a compiler, run your tests, or they broke, go make changes, run it through a compiler, run my tests. Mm -hmm. uh, and Scala in yeah, particular suffers from having a fairly slow compiler because it does so much more than the Java compiler. So, yeah, you know, that, that was one of the restrictions there. And also, Scala's power... A lot of its power comes from its type system. Um, and it does type inference, so you don't have to type in a lot of stuff. But there's still a huge amount of type machinery present in even the simplest Scala program. Uh, and certainly when I first started playing with it in 2009, if you got something wrong in your code, you would get these gigantic incomprehensible stack traces that often pointed back into the collections library with references to types that weren't even in your code. Uh, which was all part of the magic of how the collections library worked, which is great, and it's you know the brilliant construction. But it's really hard to work with that in the context of a team who are used to CF with fairly straightforward stack traces and error messages. So it just didn't really fit. Uh, that meant looking around for something that ran on the JVM, uh, was a dynamic scripting language that would allow us to do compile-on-demand uh, and get instant feedback on errors. So that was really what led me to closure. Okay. Now that's interesting. I have I have heard it said that uh, Scala can be particularly complicated. Like it has a lot of a lot of concepts behind it. Um, is that something you found as well, or? Well, I was I was lucky if if lucky is the right word because I had <laughs> been exposed to category theory and and stuff like that back at university. Yep. So a lot of what some people say is hard about Scala wasn't particularly hard for me, um, but even Martin Odersky, the creator of Scala, has proposed multiple sort of tiers of usage um, with some of the features being avoided unless you're an advanced developer and so on. Okay. So Scala definitely has a perception problem around complexity, uh, and its proponents say it's not really a complex language per se, but... There are certainly aspects of it that are not things a lot of programmers will have dealt with. And so, so it's, it's the complexity of the unknown. Yeah. Would, it, would it be almost like if you're just trying to get things done, there's only a certain level of stuff that you need to probably worry about. But if, say, you're a framework author, then there's, there's a whole other kettle of fish. Exactly, exactly. And if you're starting to do stuff with a collection library uh, in Nanga, then yes, you're going to run into a lot of this because of the, the type safety issues in the collections library. Yep. Do you, do you think actually that functional programming as a concept in general appeals more to people who either have or used to have a good exposure, exposure to math? Because that's what I, you know, 
find quite a bit and in the closure community at least i find you know less people who come from a web development or web design background and more people who have like a traditional formal computer science um training and have done all that stuff like for example category theory and you know concepts of functional programming and all that stuff from the ground up in at uni basically and learn to like the you know the way functional programming works that in some ways i think it's almost a historical accident uh when i was at university it was back in the very early 80s and oo hadn't really gone mainstream so what you got taught was typically functional programming because oo wasn't around to be taught mm -hmm. uh, i mean to put it in context Seafront, which was the, the first C++ compiler, AT&T released Seafront version E in 1984. That was the educational edition of the C++ compiler. So before that point, unless people had been working with some of the older OO languages like Smalltalk mm -hmm. uh, and Similar and things like that, there wouldn't have been any OO context for them to work with, whereas there was plenty of functional programming context. Now, if you fast forward to how modern computer science is taught, first off, a lot of schools and colleges teach Java. Um, so That's you know, you're going OO straight from yeah, you go OO straight from day one. And so I think it's it's more that shift rather than anything else that's caused the issue. Because what happens now is people come out of college and if they know programming at all, they probably only know OO programming. Um, and so functional programming is alien to them only because they haven't been taught. Whereas if you took the people who went through when I went through and the, the supposed, you know, the, the comp sci background that everyone hears about, those are people who would have gone through before OO uh, and not been as exposed to it. And for them, OO is a strange way of thinking. That is actually a very good point. I never, never thought about that, thought about it from that point of view. Um, while we're at that topic, the fact that pretty much most computer science schools or you know IT-related degrees um, teach Java nowadays, what do you think of that? Because I personally think it's not really a good idea. No, um, I mm. I think it was Joel on Software who did a fairly um, fairly scathing piece about what he called Java schools. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, where you get students coming out and they, they know Java, but they don't really understand programming. Yeah. And so all they know Ooh. is Java as a language and how to solve simple problems with it. So they're not really taught about conceptual stuff behind the scenes. Uh, and that does seem to be a general problem with a lot of computer science education these days. Mm -hmm. You find in some schools um, they do a similar thing but use... Um, stuff like C-sharp um, instead of Java. Yeah, possibly. I don't know that I've heard too much of that. I think one interesting development recently was, uh, and I think it was the MIT course, um, the 101 level course for CompSci, where there was a bit of buzz because they decided instead of teaching it with Scheme, which is a functional programming language, they're going to teach it with Python instead. Okay. Um, and there were interesting people choice. Yeah, I mean, Python actually does have a lot of the functional constructs. Uh, and various people have said Python is a lisp in C clothing. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, yep. 
Um, but, you know, those courses are unusual in still sticking to that. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, you guys should look up and get a link into your show notes for is the MIT uh, Abelson and Sussman courses because they are available uh, for free and it's their original courses from the 80s teaching programming concepts using uh, Scheme. I think I've heard of that actually before. I yeah. think, uh, here we go, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, Harold Abelson and Ger- Gerald That's J. It. Sussman. That is Julie it. Sussman. All right, I'll see that in the show notes. And that is an absolutely awesome course. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things that's important is it gets into uh, the idea of a big O notation, which is the, the, com- yep. the complexity calculations about algorithms. Uh, and it gets into that, you know, I think in like second or third uh, lecture. So, you know, that's, I think, very, very important thing that a lot yeah. of people just aren't taught anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's I agree. Oh, I mean, I came, I came out of university. I mean, I've got a bachelor of multimedia, like Buzzword Central, right there. <laughs> um, yeah, totally, totally coming out with a with a Java background. Um, though, yeah, I, I I find that interesting. I don't know whether it was particular to the school I was at, but I didn't find that it was particular, particularly Java specific. But I think also it could have been the fact that I was doing a multimedia degree so that, you know, while I was learning in Java, during my degree, we were doing Flash, we were doing Director. Anyone remember Director? And, um, mm-hmm. You know, we were doing Flash, we were doing Director. What else did we do? I mean, we did, uh, I was writing called Fusion while I was at uni too. So we were kind of skipping around languages. So from the get-go, it was kind of like, okay, yes, you have these concepts from these other programming languages, but you have to apply it to like half a dozen different paradigms. But I can totally see how someone could step out of an environment where all their learning is Java and go, Great. Now I know how to build an array list. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that you did a bachelor in multimedia and ended up actually being a backend developer. Yeah. So I mean, if you if you want to go further enough back, I mean, I came out of high school. I did a I did a one year long graphic design uh, preparation course. Um, oh my god. I was all I was all artsy as a kid, and drew and did all sorts of stuff that I don't okay. really do anymore. Um, and so, yeah, when I got out of that, I was like, I don't really want to be doing design, but I really want to get into like doing more programming stuff. I almost got into robotics. It's an interesting thing, but that's ooh, a whole other story. Fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, ooh. And then I found a multimedia degree, and I was like, ooh, I can make pretty pictures, and I can do programming. <laughs> and then I just did less and less pretty pictures and more and more programming, okay. and ended up marrying a graphic designer, which was like that makes life, that life easy. <laughs> See, that's, that's interesting. The first time I got in touch with functional languages was actually at uni when I was doing some work at, in, in a, in a uh, research project and the guys there wrote a compiler for a specification language and they did that in M- ML. Oh, and yeah. that was the first time basically I saw functional code and I looked at it and I thought, what the hell is going on here? That's just so different because I was brought up in uni with Java development as well. You know, computer science 101 in our, in, at our uni was basically Java. And um, then later I did a paper with Haskell and that was really interesting and that got me more an idea of what was going on and what is going on in the functional world. But as you said, you know, back then in the mid-90s when I went to uni and did my degree, functional programming was, you know, academic. It wasn't academic fun, but not really used for anything in the real world 
I'll say. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's been the big challenge that folks have had uh, as we've seen the move to multi-core is how do we actually tackle that and suddenly people are going, oh, you know that academic functional stuff? It's actually really useful all of a sudden. Mm, yeah. um, so, you know, F-sharp, which was the language that Microsoft um, developed, and I think can't remember that's now gone open source or, or how that's been spun it's off. Around it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely um, definitely around, and it's part. I think it's part of Visual um, Studio Studio.net still. It's still supported, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's a language that I I believe that's directly influenced by ML. Okay. So and Haskell has had a resurgence. Um, I know there's a a company in San Francisco, a startup, where a lot of their back end is built in Haskell. And increasingly, I see people talking about using Haskell to build, uh, you know, high-performance code that gets incorporated into other things. Okay. So when we look at different functional languages, are there, from your point of view, different subgroups, how things are done? I mean, from, from what I, when I look at it, I look at, for example, Haskell and Lisp or Lisp-like languages, there is quite a distinct difference between those. Yeah, and Lisp was not a pure functional language. I mean, Lisp had essentially variables that you could set um, and loops and so on. So Lisp was a very uh, very practical approach to doing data processing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was created more for the, uh, the idea of having the data and the programs be in a similar form so that you could manipulate your programs uh, as if they were data and you could treat data as code and so on. Um, so, you know, a lot of that was a very practical approach rather than this pure idea of complete immutability. Um, but all the lists are related in that they have a similar syntax, so scheme and racket and list and closure uh, and so on. And they're all based on the idea of S expressions, which is uh, anything that's a parenthesized list with a bunch of symbols and, and things inside. Uh, and the general idea is the first thing in the list is always a function, uh, and the list represents a call that gets executed. And so if you want a real list of data, you say, well, here's list, and then all these numbers, or you say quote of the list to say don't evaluate it, treat it as data. Yeah. And that's the basic syntax for all lists. So, hold on, let me get this straight. So Lisp is a programming language, but Lisp is also a category of functional programming languages? Yeah, you'll, you'll say yeah. <laughs> closure is a Lisp, and a okay, scheme great. is a Lisp. So Lisp is a whole family of Lisp processing languages. Right. So Lisp is the syntax more than anything else, or the style of syntax of a functional programming language. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a bit like you know when you look at Java and C and C plus plus and even JavaScript. You know the the way how the language looks like when you write it yep. looks similar across all of them, even yeah, though there are a bunch of different and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the C family of languages. Yeah. yeah, okay, that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And Lisp is Lisp is the one that looks like it's just completely blown up because it's got so many parentheses. Yeah, you know, it's funny because people say that, and yet if you look at a reasonably complex piece of Java and a reasonably complex piece of Lisp. Um, <laughs> The list will actually quite often have fewer parentheses, or will certainly not have any more. Uh, in Java, you have you know your curly braces and your square brackets and your angle brackets. Yep. Are they different? 
See, oh, that's yeah, different. Yeah. <laughs> but, different. It, but in closure, they're different as well because you actually have square brackets for vectors that's and true. for argument lists, and you have braces for maps and sets and parentheses for function calls and lists. So, you know, once you get over that initial fear of, oh my God, look at the parentheses. Yeah, it's totally different. You, yeah, and they start to tune out. So you actually just don't notice them. And some of the yeah. editors, they have what they call rainbow parentheses. And the parentheses are highlighted in muted pastel, pastel colors. So all you really see is the code indented with the little guidelines to show you what the structure is. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I definitely, I've I've very briefly looked at Clojure, but the the first thing I did when I looked at it was went, whoa, what the hell's that? And then <laughs> as you sort of get into it a little bit further, it's like, okay, that's that's starting to make some sense once you kind of get the get the structure. I think um, it's that it's it's almost that sort of convention because you talked about sort of you know the first part of the uh, of the of the function is the, is the sorry the first part of the list or the s expression is the function name, and that's not necessarily inherently obvious if you don't know that. Yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes a series of words sort of stringing together, and you're going, yeah? <laughs> um, you don't necessarily have the separation of, say, a dot or, you know, or a semicolon or things like that that we're also used to, so it can make it kind of uh, intimidating, yeah. maybe. Yeah, and I mean, and the other thing is that because the structure is so simple, it's always a list with a function at the beginning and arguments following, um, people tend to forget that you know, we're used to seeing commas as separators, but in fact, closure allows you to have commas as separators. It yep. just treats them as white space because they're just not needed. So one thing I haven't, I haven't worked out in my learning about closure, so I figured I could ask you guys because cheap learning. So in, in object-oriented, <laughs> I'll take advantage, I don't mind. Um, in object-oriented programming, obviously, we've got objects and we've got packages, and that's sort of how you break up your software pack, your software application into sort of manageable chunks that you can then go off and test and do stuff with. Obviously, in a functional language, you have functions, but then can you group those together, or how does how does that work? How would you like sort of structure structure an application together? How does that how does that sort of come together? Well, Clojure has namespaces, which are a bit like Java packages, uh, okay. and so you will group functions by functionality, related functionality, or the, the type of data that they operate on. Uh, and so, you know, overall your package structure is a lot like Java, except it tends to be um, fewer levels. It's not as nested. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for example, at World Singles, we have um, a data namespace, which is all our persistence utilities. We have a user namespace, which is all the functions that interact with um, users and member profiles. Um, and, you know, we have an environment package which is all of our tier management and all the things that vary by tier, you know, whether it's dev, QA, CI, production, and so on. So we break it down into groups like that. Uh, and then occasionally what you'll have is you'll have like a public API and an implementation uh, namespace. Um, so, for example, with our uh, World Singles Data namespace, we have a World Singles Data Core, which is the closure-facing uh, implementation and World Singles Data is the CFML-facing implementation. So it's the, the simple so API. And then you would do something like require the core namespace. That's right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's not that's not necessarily um, exposed in the same way as a Java programmer would do, as like public or private or, or or protected. That's more of a convention that you've you've sort of used within how you're setting up your application. 
Right, and spaces. if you look around at some of the, the modern languages, the whole public-private protected yes. thing is, is a bit of a, an artificial creation in the Java world, really. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was uh, in Groovy, where private, in fact, is, is essentially just white space, and so it doesn't really make things private at all, I believe. Mm. Um, and so this whole idea of, you know, well, I'm going to make it private so no one can mess with it. Well, who don't you trust? Is it to stop your programmers getting at it? You know, you don't trust your own team. Is it to say, this is not part of the public interface as a library? And those are mm -hmm. two completely different things. Yep. So, you know, if you have a well-defined public API and you say, this namespace is the public API, then, Comes you know, simple. Yeah, it's very simple. And then the rest of its implementation details. And in fact, Clojure does allow you to mark things as being private to the namespace. So okay. you can actually have utilities inside a namespace that are private. Um, but on the other hand, it's actually quite easy to expose those to the outside. So for testing, for example, you can actually reach into a namespace and pull out the fully qualified symbol and say, I want to test this function, even though it's an implementation detail. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I kept wondering about is as well is um, it, I don't know if embed is the right word, but is it is it easier to almost to use a NoSQL solution than it, than it would be with a relational database solution? Because obviously the data structures coming out would probably I would have thought would fit nicely with with Clojure or any functional programming language. Well, the NoSQL stuff really kind of does away with the objects and the relations, so you will have. A data structure that is, yeah. you know, a struct perhaps with nested elements. It's you know got some nested arrays and nested struts, and you're able to wipe the entire thing out in one go. So from that point of view, yes, the NoSQL is is a slightly better match for the document stores at least. Um, on the other hand, the way that we interact with our uh, SQL databases is we have a map which is just you know a CFML struct, and that is one row of a particular table, and if we have related data, we manage that in the application. So we don't oh, yes. follow the ORM paradigm anyway. Um, we tend to think in terms of data, and there are related pieces of data, but it's something that the application knows yep. about for the most part. And it's really just lists and maps, and yeah. it doesn't really matter where it comes from. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. So the, the closure stuff you write at work, Sean, um, how do you integrate it with um, you know, the, the cold fusion part of the application. I think you've, you've written a library to do some yeah, part I, of that, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a little wrapper. Uh, I mean, one of the things that Clojure provides is a class called closure.lang.rt, which is the runtime. Uh, and that's just a regular Java class. And so if you wanted to embed some Clojure in your Java program or your Scala program or whatever, or your CF program, you'd create an instance of closure.lang.rt and then you can say, okay, give me a reference to this namespace, give me a reference to this uh, function within the namespace, and then just call it. Uh, and so that's all pretty straightforward. And what I've done with CFMLJR, which is the library that I wrap things up in, is mostly using onMissing method to make the method calls map transparently to uh, .invoke calls, which is how you actually invoke functions inside Clojure. The other thing you can do is you can actually, with Clojure, compile down to Java classes explicitly. Uh, it's called AOT, Ahead of Time Compilation. And with that, you get regular .class files. You can build regular .jar files. Uh, and then you can just link that in with your, any of your other code and call it just like Java classes. 
So one of the things we have is we have uh, a database appender for Log4j written in Clojure, and we AOT compile just that one namespace so that we can link it into the Log4j uh, calling mechanism. But what it does internally is it uses the Clojure runtime to resolve to the implementation. And so all the rest of the Clojure code that it relies on is actually loaded dynamically and compiled on the fly. Ah, okay. Where do people find that library? If uh, it's on GitHub, use... so if okay. you go to GitHub and you go to github.com slash Sean Caulfield, it's, it's one of my many um, little libraries in there. Okay. Um, it's a little tricky to set up because it's tuned to work with Rilo on Tomcat, um, and I'm still looking at ways to make it work more easily with uh, ACF, although now ACF's going to be on Tomcat, that'll probably be easier. Um, part of the issue there is that Rilo, if you have an array of numbers, it's really an array of numbers, and when you pass it to closure, it looks like a vector of numbers. And in ACF, if you have an array of numbers, it actually looks like an array of objects or an array of strings, and when you pass it into closure, um, closure says, well, these are just objects, they're not numbers I can do operations on. So mm -hmm. you have to do a lot more casting to get your data from ACF into Clojure than you do from Rilo. Like write, okay. write Java casts in, in the CFML code, basically. Yeah, okay. yeah, you've got to start using Java cast a lot okay. or having Clojure construct more of these things for you. Yep. Um, another question I wanted to ask you, um, and you, you know, covered some of that already. What type of projects do you use Clojure for at, Good question. at your work? We use it as a general purpose scripting language. So we okay. use it for persistence. We use it for dealing with email. Um, we have a process that runs on one of our servers that spends all day, all day long, looking at um, member profiles and finding matches for people based on their preferences and sending them emails that say, you know, here are your latest matches. Uh, or here are new people who've joined since the last time I sent you an email and they match your criteria. Mm -hmm. And so it's running through the database, it's interacting with our search engine, uh, and then it's generating HTML emails and sending those off. And all of that code is closure. Uh, so we really do use it just as a general purpose scripting language on the back end um, for ordinary everyday things. So are you generally replacing, say, what would normally be, would have, would have been in a CFML world, CFCs and, and things like that, with a lot more closure code? Is that how, how is that certainly structured? That's, that's gradually what's happening. I mean, the initial work came in because we wanted to, we have a couple of external processes that are very long running. I mean, we literally have some processes that run 24-7. And so we'd initially looked at Scala for these, uh, and closure being a better fit, we switched them to closure. And so those couldn't really be done in CF at all because, you know, they have to run literally 24-7. I mean, the, yep. the, the email process I just described runs on a dedicated server and it runs 24-7 with, you know, on this 16-gig machine with 16 cores and it runs all day long, every day, and it does nothing but trawl through millions of records in the database, running millions of queries against the search engine uh, and sending off, you know, hundreds of thousands of emails. Um, so there are certain things we're using it for that you could not use CF for. But because we're building some of those low-level pieces, in order to support that, rather than duplicate them in CF, it's actually easier for us to then call that same code from CF. 
Yeah. So we gradually started switching over a lot of the low-level stuff which we had in CF originally to manage environment settings, uh, to do database persistence, um, and all of that is gradually switching over all of our search engine interaction. Uh, I mean, we, our main application is a cold box app, and so in, for the search side of things, we have a search handler, and pretty much all it does is marshal the data that comes in through the URL and form scope, uh, and then call down into the closure layer to do the actual searching and get results back, and then it converts it back into CFML-style struts, yeah. uh, because they're slightly different. And so, yeah, over time, I expect most of the business logic in the app will go over to, uh, to Clojure. Okay, that's an interesting, interesting scenario, I think. When you, when you develop in Clojure, what tools do you use? I mean, starting from the IDE, but also, you know, getting into stuff like deployment tools and unit testing. Well, one of the things that's very interesting about Clojure, and this is true of a lot of the, the languages that have appeared over the last decade, is that they have what they call a REPL, a read-eval print loop. So, uh, you know, Ruby has this, it's IRB, it's the interactive Ruby processor. Uh, Scala has a REPL, I think Groovy has a REPL. Uh, and so there's very much this exploratory way to work when you're programming in these languages where you type in expressions and, and statements and functions and they get evaluated immediately. So you can experiment with them and see how the data is transformed and see what your code does. Uh, and that allows you to essentially do a lot of testing as you develop the code. So, you know, you'll construct expressions you say, well, I need to be able to take this kind of data and get this out, so I'll experiment with this. Oh, that gets me halfway out, and this gets me into the next piece. Okay, I'll extract these as tests, and then I'll take this final piece of code as my executable production code. And so you build up your code iteratively um, through an interactive console. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the IDE, I use Emacs, which a lot of Clojure people use. Um, it's an ancient old editor, but it's very, very well suited for work with Lisp because uh, it's actually a lot of it's built in a dialect of Lisp. And so it integrates with the REPL very well. Um, it's, it's just got that kind of Lisp way of thinking about it, um, and so you you write some code, you either write it in the REPL or you write it in a file, and a keystroke will send it to the REPL and execute it. Um, I actually have a window open inside Emacs which is running a shell, and the shell is running um, an expectations library, which is my testing library, and every time I save either test code or uh, source code, it automatically runs the unit tests. So it's there inside the editor, always running, takes about eight seconds at the moment to run the unit tests we have. Uh, and so, you know, you work away, and as soon as you break something, you see it there in the window, um, and it's all automatic. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of our build chain, we use Ant for most of our packaging and deployment, and that is also able to run expectations, um, and we'll, it'll stop the build if that fails. Uh, alongside our MX unit tests and our Selenium tests. So we have a fairly extensive set of automated tests. Okay. I, I mean, I have to, to, to explain that, basically, that question a little bit. When we met at Closure West, basically, the other month, you introduced me to Emacs, or reintroduced <laughs> me to Emacs, rather, because I used it way back for some normal text editing, basically. And I have to say, I really like it. 
I mean, I'm still using it for, for Clojure. I'm not using it for anything else, to be fair. Um, my, my Java or CFML stuff, I usually do in IntelliJ nowadays. But mm -hmm. for Clojure, it is a really compelling compelling model and it's quite lightweight basically as well you know you can just run it basically in your in your shell if you want to from a from a command prompt or you I use the um, the Mac version of Emacs which works quite nicely so mm -hmm. it's a really nice tool and it takes a bit of time to get used to it to all those funny keystrokes but after you get a got a hang of it it's incredibly fast to navigate around stuff Basically, yeah. I mean, you know, yesterday, for example, I um, over the weekend, Clojure 1.4.0 got released, and so I was running through a whole bunch of Clojure libraries, making sure that the testing was updated to run on um, 1.4.0 and now 1.5.0 Master Snapshot, which is the, the bleeding edge release. And you know, with Emacs, with its built-in um, Git integration, is very slick. Uh, running the tests is all very slick. So you just work on the code, you run the tests you know, a few keystrokes, you've got your git buffer up, um, you commit stage, commit and push your changes, and you're on to the next file, and it's a, a very slick workflow. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is also, it has a built-in IRC client, okay. uh, and, you know, like so many open source languages, uh, the closure channel on Freenode is always active, there's always about 300 people on there, so it's a good way to get support from the community and ask questions. So I treat that as an interactive help panel inside Emacs. <laughs> that works. <laughs> nice. So, but yeah, okay. it, it certainly is a little hard work to get used to. Uh, I mean, I'd taken a break from Emacs for 20 years, and when I came back to it, my first thought was, oh my God, it really hasn't changed. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's developed a lot more modules, and it's actually gotten a lot more friendly to use in the modern world. Um, but certainly all its keystrokes predate a lot of the modern Control-C, Control-V, Control-X kind of stuff that we think of today. That sounds great. Okay, I know we need to wrap up soon, but uh, are there any particular resources that you've uh, you found particularly useful for learning Clojure or where people should go when they want to learn more about Clojure? There are actually some great ones. Uh, if you just want to experiment and do a little tutorial without uh, needing to install anything, there's a website called tryclj.com which has a little interactive window and um, you can type in the word tutorial and then it will walk you through learning a whole bunch of things. Uh, and once you've gone through that and you've experimented, there's another site called Foreclosure, which is the digit four and then closure. And that's a whole bunch of puzzles and you have to type in um, functions that satisfy the puzzles or expression. And then it will run it through a series of unit tests and say whether you've passed or not. Uh, and there's actually a ranking board of, you know, how many people have passed how many tests. And if you want, you can even play Code Golf, which is to see if you can solve it in the smallest amount of code. And so there's this whole ranking championship for people who have very, very small, concise solutions to all the problems. So that's a lot of fun as well. And then there are obviously the um, closure cones. Which are hosted yes, on the closure cones. Yes, that's true. That's a very good way to learn because you run a script and then you just work through making each of the little puzzles pass. So that's another great way to learn closure. Just making sure I add these all to the uh, the show notes. So they all sound really, really good. Um, any particular books that you've liked in the past? That uh, I, I tend to work well with books, but. Uh, yeah, the, the one I like best in terms of introduction is Closure Programming by Chaz Emmerich, Brian Carper, and Christoph Grand. 
and that's on O'Reilly. Um, I really like that one. There's a second edition of Programming Closure, which is Stuart Halloway and Aram Bedra, and that's I think that's just been released on Pragmatic Press, Pragmatic Programmers uh, thing. Um, and then the sort of perennial, once you've got started book, is The Joy of Closure, which is much more about the why of functional programming. Uh, and it really looks into the functional mindset going, rather than teaching you the language and teaching you how to solve problems. Yeah, I personally would say I like Closure in Action quite a lot, actually. I think it's a very nice book to get started with Closure if you have at least a little bit of concept of functional programming already. At least yeah, an idea. My, my only problem with that is that when Manning released it, uh, 1.3 was already out, and that book is based on 1.2. Yeah. Um, and you really, because of the way things changed in the library, you really need to have a 1.3 compatible book. Cool. Now that all sounds really, really good. I think we actually even covered pretty much all the books out there now. <laughs> it's not, it's not, really, uh, not really too many yet. No, that's good. No, yeah. I'm kind of, for, yeah, for I'm, such a new language, there are actually quite a lot of books. It's quite amazing, really. Yeah. Since you've really taken off. Okay, well, that's great. I think we'll, we'll need to wrap up there. Um, so thank you, Sean, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful opportunity to chat with you, and I'll see you in May as well, which would be great. Yeah, looking forward to that. Which is good. Um, if people want to bug you or harass you in any way, shape, or form, what's the uh, best way for them to do that? Oh, probably the easiest way is just um, just ping me on IM. I'm pretty easy to find on IM. Uh, most people know what my handles are. Uh, or ping me at shawncorfield.org. That's can do that. quite straightforward. So, Mark, how can people get hold of you? People can get hold of me on my website, www.compoundtheory.com. Uh, probably best to at me on Twitter as Neurotic. And, uh, yeah, if anyone's got any other issues, I think uh, our contact details are on our website as well. Or leave a comment in the comment box underneath the podcast. We like comments. That's a very, like good, very good idea. Um, and if people want to get hold of me, my Twitter handle is Agent K and my um, email address Kai at Ventigo-creative.co-nz. So again, Sean, thanks a lot for coming along um, on our little show. And um, yeah, I enjoyed it very much, basically. Yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting to you guys. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you. Thanks.